Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is allegedly, according to May Shots, our <laughs> producer, our 200th episode, but none of us are sure, and none of us are going to go back and We're count. like so, we got, we were very sloppy about the numbering early on, I think, oh, no. so we'll see. Well, not early, like continually, but it might be our 200th <laughs> okay. episode, which, you know, is a time to reflect, but I think we did that before when we said yeah, it's our 192nd so. episode. There's no need to reflect right now. Today, we have a very, very... I think we have a great guest. Um, there was uh, her name is Karen Tonkson. She's a professor uh, at USC. We'll have a, a more appropriate introduction when we talk to her. But we talked about Olivia Rodrigo, who I don't know. I mean, I feel I feel like the shame because I'm so old and a you know like an old dad. But I love this Olivia Rodrigo album, and I you know I wrote about it. But there's all these things that I didn't write about that I was honestly yeah. a, little, a little bit more interested in than what i actually wrote about um and, and you mentioned it in our newsletter last yeah week, yeah yeah so, and in yeah. the discord because the it yeah. literally has just been on my mind for mm-hmm. two weeks because i'm just like uh what is the deal with with the way that people respond to this to this to this 20 year old act you know um so we talk about that we talk yeah. about karaoke culture in the Philippines, Filipino we talk about basically, production. I don't know. It was yeah. great. I feel like this interview could have gone on for three hours, and mm-hmm. I'm sure that Karen at some point would have been bored, but I would not have been, right? <laughs> and one thing about the interview that I should point out is that Tammy at some point had a water emergency in her apartment. And I'm so really sorry, y'all. It's, yeah. Right. So if you notice in the middle of the interview that only Jay is asking questions, it is not, you know, it is not the <laughs> patriarchy that is that is uh to blame for that and unless... also the water sounds are not me peeing <laughs> yeah, or cleaning like... the toilet or doing <laughs> anything there was a guy in my kitchen and i have a one-room apartment essentially <laughs> it literally sounds like tammy is uh <laughs> recording inside of a toilet <laughs> as, so it, as it randomly flushes from time so, to time. and i'm like trying to focus listening to you guys anyway sorry <laughs> okay so um yeah uh as, as always if you'd like to subscribe to our show it's five dollars a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsg pod uh your donations help us put this on for allegedly 200 episodes <laughs> and um yeah um bring on great guests like karen and um, I don't know. It's just like a nice thing to do, yeah. I think. Yeah, supports know? a lot of in-person activities. And- Tam and I don't make much money at all on this <laughs> podcast. I'll just put it that way. And sometimes we turn down lucrative other podcasting opportunities. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe um, you do, Jay. No, not really. I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> I don't know why I just said that. I feel like I'm negotiating with our listeners right now. You'd be like, listen, there's this other this offer. like a hostage. <laughs> I'm like, where's my point of leverage? But yeah, um, just do it to be nice and support the show. Um, before we talk to Karen, I want to bring up something that I, or I want to ask you about something, which is yeah. that our colleague Claire Malone at The New Yorker, this last week published a story about Hassan Minaj, right? And um, I think Very that everyone who's listened to this probably understands it, but it turns out that a lot of the anecdotes that he used in his stand-up comedy didn't actually happen. And these range from, uh, you know, like saying, oh, this man, in, this like white guy infiltrated our mosque when I was a kid growing up in mm-hmm. Davis, California, which didn't happen. It happened to a different mosque. Um, you know, basically making up a story about how his he got anthrax or like some white powder sent to him in the mail yeah. and it spilled on his 
daughter's face and his daughter ended up in the in the ER like that yeah. didn't happen that, either right yeah um, small baby like and, weird story right very strange story and it brought up this conversation that I actually found quite interesting which was uh you know I like at what point do, do people have creative liberty to make things up in stand-up comedy mm-hmm. I think that like my sense of that is very capacious like you can just make up anything it doesn't matter but and then also like why was this such a big story then right like yeah. I think this was like I don't know. This went viral for sure. And right. All and kinds a of lot of people around. had all sorts of opinions about it. So uh-huh. what do you think about the story, Tammy? Okay. Well, one thing is it plugged into something very deep in my life, which was my brief experience on a news comedy show, because uh-huh. part of the analysis of Hassan is like, he has a stand-up, but then he had that show Patriot Act, which was news comedy, which is fact-checked, which is presenting information. And so... If you are a stand-up comic, yeah, sure, do whatever the hell you want on stage, potentially. But then how does that affect you when you're also working in another format that's supposed to actually deliver real information to people? Right. And, um, you know, there was also allegations of, like, workplace misconduct and, you know, disregarding fact-checking and journalism within the context of the show. So that was kind of familiar to me. Um, So I think that that is like an added dimension to this. But I think what you're probably really interested in, Jay, and what was also striking to me and just observing the discourse is a conversation around like, why does a brown Muslim Indian man like want to make up stories of this nature? Like, oh yeah, what is, well, right. Like no, that, I am that, interested I like in that, but I think we that. can talk about your about the other part too right now, which is that um, many years ago I worked on a television show uh, in the development of a TV show at National Geographic, right? And um, it was National Geographic Explorer, which is their flagship show, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And they wanted to reboot it, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to turn it more like The Daily Show. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I mean, listen, that. let me tell you about the graveyard of bad ideas that I've been a part of. But that's like, that's probably like near the end. The deepest of the graveyard. <laughs> yeah. I, was just like, wow. I did it because it was a lot of money and because I was interested in television, you know? But yeah. it was a bad idea. I think anyone who worked on that show will tell you it's a bad idea. That's hilarious. But the thing that they did to do that show was that they hired a whole bunch of comedy writers to come in. And let me tell you, some of these comedy writers were wonderful people and I still admire them and I like them. So it is not a reflection on them, you know? Um, Some of them are deeply funny people and they're like, basically with the exception of one person, everyone was very nice to me. But I was hired as the journalist. You were the one? (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh, like so it was almost like I felt like I was like a to- <laughs> like a token racial figure, you know, <laughs> but but as like the journalist, That's right? That's amazing. Because the executive at the time wanted to do he had like two ideas of what to do with Explorer. The first was that he wanted to make it more like Vice, right, on HBO, which is he wanted to make it much more dangerous and sexy and immersive and yet he also wanted to make it a comedy show and so every day me and these poor writers would sit around and be like what is this (laughs) like what are i had a very similar experience i have to say (laughs) and so when you're in those rooms when you're making television what you realize very quickly is that journalism doesn't matter right um like you as a journalist 
like it's a horrible position to be because what yeah. you are is like you're the police you know you're the killjoy right you're just the skull to come in and be like well actually you know like I you're know. not allowed to do that type of interview and then they're just like what are you talking <laughs> about it's funny be like oh i'm sorry but you cannot you cannot frankenbite that because it's like you know it's actually that is not exactly what the person is saying and exactly. it is not ethical right and they're just like uh fuck you get out of my face you know and then you just I don't know, go get lunch or something like that, right? Like, that's not what happened to me on the Nat Geo show, but that's basically what was supposed to happen. And I would say that my experience at Vice, not on the show I worked on, but overall at Vice, right? The show I worked on was all journalism nerds. It was different. Okay, but Vice right. generally, yeah, there's a little bit of like, you know, I think it's famous for being a little bit loose and fast with stuff. That's for sure, yeah. And so there is part of me that was sympathetic on a structural sense to Hassan Minaj because I was just like, these journalists need to stay the fuck out of TV. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like who wants to be no, have a show I... that's run by a bunch of scolding nerds? Dude. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But also, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I obviously did not have a great experience being in that position. I mean, I, you know, there's obviously all kinds of financial reasons why so many of our friends are going into that part right. of the industry, you know, and, Another thing I'll just point out is like there's there's so many workplace violations and just problems with that structure. Like, first of all, we're not in the writer's guild. Right. So the writer, the comedy writers who have the same job as us, but are making jokes instead of like doing the research on facts, although we write scripts together, are making on average like twice as much, if not more than the journalists on staff. And like there was, you know, I think on Hassan's show and some of the other news shows, like basically the journalists just get like eventually ejected from the writer's room and right. are just like on the outskirts, like checking the scripts and stuff. It can be a very sort of like. Oh, it's a terrible job. Yeah, situation. I would never be in a, um, I would never go back to a situation. Yeah. Where I was, so, like, I mean, yes, you're right. Journalist. Like journalists don't take these jobs unless you know exactly what you're getting into but or just take it and take you know. the money you know well that's the thing like yeah, i like i, I got paid a, a lot. like i i probably didn't get paid as much as the comedy writers for this but i got I, let me yeah. tell you what i got paid a lot much more than more in journalism than the two dollars a word i was making at the time for the new york times magazine <laughs> exactly. you know like which yeah. amounted to like thirty six thousand dollars a year or something totally. like that of yeah. 1099 income well that yeah and that's yeah. the thing and i think that's like that's why we're so vulnerable to that in our industry. But anyway, like it's also fun to work on yeah. a TV show. Like, but yeah, I agree. So that I part, I, I totally <laughs> agree with you that like yeah. there's like a sense of like um, where there's a structural issue where journalism and these types of things don't really work. And for me, like from that sense, his show was uh, was based on. It was obviously like a spinoff or inspired by the John Oliver show, right? But John Oliver's yeah. show is pretty like straight down the middle when it comes to actually presentation of facts, right? Like it is not something that like it tries very hard to be accurate and it tries the jokes are sort of built into it in a way that I like, I don't think there's ever like maybe there has been, but I can't remember some big controversy about like some fabulous or fabrication or anything like that on that show. I don't show, think so. And that wasn't, show, and right? I think that wasn't the case on Patriot Act either, right? Right, right, like, right, right. Yeah. Right. But, but obviously that was, you know, but still there were those structural issues. Like I'm sure the journalists had to fight to make sure everything was fine right. from what we are seeing in Claire's piece and other places. Right. And I, I don't know, I guess like there's all these things are derivative of the daily show, obviously, right. Mm -hmm. Colbert report yeah. or whatever. And that there's this, and you know, both Hassan and, um, John Oliver both were correspondents at The Daily Show, right? And so um, 
I don't know. It's like an interesting moment where you just think like, okay, well, what was the legacy of these shows, right? Like yeah. they obviously were very good to for a liberal type of audience. Um, and yet it just was like, when I think back on it, it's just like, I don't, they just feel kind of scoldy to me in a way that's not very funny, you know, and that um, <laughs> I think that I enjoyed The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was doing it. I enjoyed, I think Last Week Tonight is good, you know, but like there's some thing where it be, when it became Patriot Act, where I was just like always so resistant to it because I felt like more than those two, maybe I felt like Hassan was not saying anything, you know, like it was just kind of like liberal schmaltz pack package in a POC person who was going to say like things that sounded kind of edgy POC edgy, like Tumblr edgy, whatever, (laughs) and never really were, you know? And, and that's why I was so interested in the unraveling of all this. Cause then you find out, Oh, this stuff that's not really as edgy as it seems like all of it's also fake, (laughs) you know? And then I was just like, Oh my God. (laughs) Well, yeah, I, I, I feel like these news comedy shows, it's so much about your connection to the person. Like I liked, for example, like Full Frontal with Sam B, right. um, which was eventually canceled. But I just sort of like her and I liked her presence. Like I've never really connected with Hassan's like stage presence. Yeah, me and neither. Yeah, which is weird because he's corny like, a, about you know, him. he's Asian. You know, I know, but Asian. he just seems like corny and he's like too pretty. I don't know. There's like, I just like, it's just not my style. And so I don't think I liked Patriot Act. And I also haven't really ever liked his stand up. Right. Um, I guess yeah. like, I was curious from your point of view, like what, what you were saying about your capacious view of stand up, like, when someone does a stand-up act and it's all in the first person, like, do you think those facts are true? No, I generally don't. And like, I, at I'm, all? Yeah, I'm fine with it. It's fine. I think stand-up is one of the great American art forms, and I don't expect any type of truth to come out of it except for, like, sort of the spiritual truth of Richard Pryor or whatever, right? Like, that stuff, I think, is, like, more moving to me than most forms of art or even forms of expression, right? But they don't have to be true, right? They don't have to have actually happened, right? Like now some of the, I think that the general parameters of one's life should be true, right? Richard Pryor talked about how he grew mm-hmm. up in a whorehouse, right? That's true. The, Richard Pryor did grow up. Did every story that he tell, told that happened there, was all that true? I don't know, but probably not, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, I think that's a little bit different and I think it than what Hassan was doing, right? Like, which was that like these fabrications, I will say, like never felt like they're in the purpose of being funny, right? And I think that there is like an actually hmm. hard to define distinction there. Wait, can you it, say more about that? Like what then what was it? Because it was part of his stand-up act. Right, but I just didn't think his stand-up act was very funny. But secondly, I just think that it was like kind of like this building up of this type of POC, and I'm using that term very intentionally, right? This POC, you have air quotes up. Yeah, I have air quotes in the <laughs> Zoom, but like a POC figure, right? Where where it's just like there's this sort of duality and there's this contradiction to it because like at the one hand it's like okay you're seeing this POC figure on Netflix, right? Or you're seeing and this POC figure is obviously very successful and beloved, right? But this POC figure is also going to tell you about, you know, how difficult this POC figure had it to make it to the point where they were, right? Like now that's not an intense contradiction or anything like that, but that's sort of the way in which we're presented with POC figures today, right? It is sort of like I'm going to be defiant to you, 
but I'm doing it in this gigantic platform that obviously makes me completely non-threatening to everybody, right? And I'm going to just say the exact things that I know that the audience wants to hear about my like sort of oppressed childhood or whatever like that, right? And that like that line of what that is shifts all the time, but then there are people who kind of find the algorithm, right? And then those people become huge stars. And most of the people I found who do that type of stuff are doing it in a very cynical type of way, right? Like I can tell, like it is not somebody who just is telling their story and then find the algorithm finds it. And then, you know, they're happily a star. Like these are people who have very several iterations of self, right? Of whatever their act is that is always searching for that. And that was the sense I always got with that dude, you know? It was like he didn't really believe in anything, right? That it was always about like self-promotion and becoming more and more famous. And I don't know, you know, one of my friends texted me and he was like, it seems like a lot of people are, were just like waiting for this thing to drop and they're just waiting to get their takes up. Well, I, I, admit, I admit, I admit to it, I was one of you them. You were hoping. <laughs> I also, it seems like also in the comedy world, maybe there were a lot of suspicions about this. Right. And, you know, there had been other forms of like investigation and fact checking, I guess, like just to put a bow on your point, like, so you're saying that with someone like Pryor, like, you understand his, even though it may not be true, it's sort of all, it's all for comedy, it's like in the act, you kind of understand it in its context. And then for Hassan, some of these things are more like in a performance of like racial something as opposed to the actual comedy of it. One is building a character that is like okay. funny and hilarious and multifaceted and intensely moving to hear about, to, to hear described, right? Um, like intensely moving. It's so unfair though, too, just because the like other one is, is so just brilliant, a, though. Yeah, I know, but, the, but, but I'm using him saying? as like yeah, an yeah. example where I think that there are people who fail at that project who I still can give credit to understanding why they would try for that, you know? And then there's like wallpapering yourself with like microaggressions and 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 racial trauma so yeah. that you're more sympathetic to white viewers, white liberal viewers who listen to NPR, right? And who like kind of want like, oh, I've got a fun show on Netflix that I watch that affirms all of my priors about Republicans, right? And um, <laughs> okay. I think there's a difference. I think there's one that you can tell. Now, is it fair to end someone's career over my perceived difference? No, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, like, I think that the idea that like, he would be called a fabulous and that his career would end over this is like, way, way, way too far. Right? Because well, the because the difference is not that distinct. Like it's like basically me being like one thing's cool and the other thing's not. Well, I, that's what I was gonna say. I mean, when right. I hear you kind of making these distinctions, to me, I just hear you being like one is good comedy and the other one is not so good comedy, and like that's what we care about because it's comedy. Right, but I think it's the intention of the way in which one portrays themselves, which is either a good way or a deeply cynical way. Right, and I, that I find yeah. the deep cynicism to be so lame. And to be yeah. so typical of these sort of successful, quote, POCs, right, that that it just kind of turns my stomach it's, in a lot of ways. You're talking about pandering. Yeah. Right, right. This sort of like, I understand how white people are going to respond to me portraying myself in this type of way that is like, affirms that Republicans did something bad and it affected people like me. But I'm actually going to present myself in this way where, like, everything I say is just for you, you know, and it's not for people that I came up with. It's not for 
the people that I am, you know, my people or whatever, right? But it is basically a prepackaged thing that allows me to be sort of a little bit, you know, like the the one of option on the big variety plate that that you enjoy. And I do think that when it's cynical in that sort of way, that we all can tell, you know, at least I could, right? Yeah. I'm well, sure to me, you could too, right? Like, did you, were you a fan of this guy? No, but I, but I, I don't know if it would, like, I, I recognize that part of it. Like, to me, I just didn't like it. Like, there was something always very too shiny, right. too kind of neat about it. I think I like, messier more offensive styles of yeah me too yeah, yeah so i don't know so but i so that's why i was like questioning is it just my taste i mean i think the thing that i would say ethically about this particular thing is on in the examples that clara has raised like the two that you mentioned and there's another one where he has a story about his high school girlfriend right that one was bad tells, yeah and tells it in a way where she's identifiable and it's sort of fact checkable i right. think like there's an ethical thing about does this fake story implicate other people and can like hurt them later after this? Like, I think if you are, yes, I, I, when I hear a standup, I'm not like, Oh, all of that is true. Like obviously people are embellishing, creating characters, like doing all kinds of creative stuff. But I think in the case of these three Hassan stories, it's like, it was his baby. It was like a guy who actually was a, an FBI informant who like fucked over Muslims. Right in another place. And it was a girl at his school who the facts that he presented her as being like this very racist person weren't true. And yeah, she's the prom a living the w- existing person. Yeah. That and you she also and is married fine. to an Indian. She's married and to she's an married, Indian right. dude. Right. And her, his story was that her family was too racist to let her go to prom with him. And yeah. that, and then he invited her to a show and she was like, I think that, she, and she didn't know that he was going to talk about her. And she was pretty sure that he was trying to humiliate her. And I was like, I bet that's why he would did it too. You know, like right. I totally buy her. What would be the other reason? Right. I mean, that's, yeah. So I think I, I, like that is like an ethical line to me, like that, that maybe that's one way of drawing a distinction. I think it's, it is also hard to produce comedy where you're creating characters and doing something that's like quasi autobiographical like right now because so much is like googleable and searchable right right. so that is the one thing where i was like hesitating but but yeah i mean i think to me there there's a fine line right the distinction though is like um for example like somebody like bobby lee tells all these stories about his childhood i have no idea if they're true or not i love bobby lee i'm the number one Bobby Lee fan <laughs> been, in America. I, I like him too. And um, Bobby Lee tells all these stories, but they're not in the service of turning Bobby Lee into like a, a hero, political yeah. hero that you yeah, have yeah. to listen to and get scolded yeah, by. Fair. They're like so humiliating actually to Bobby to Lee that sometimes <laughs> I'm just like, bro, you got to, like, I, I can't even handle this. This is like so anymore. debased for you. Right. Like, that's his whole yeah. thing. It's like constant yeah. personal debasement. Yeah. And there's no sense where he's like, and now you have to listen to what I have to say about like, you know, like uh, John Fetterman or like Joe Manchin right. or whatever. Right. But for Hassan, it was all in the idea of building himself yeah. into this like person who knows better. I right. know better. I know better. And therefore you have to listen to me like blather on about politics for 45 minutes or something yeah. like that. Right. And like, I just think that that's anti-comedy. 
right? Like, I just think that mm -hmm. if your goal is to turn yourself into like a quasi political figure that lectures people, right, and tells them they're bad people, like that is no con that's not comedy that I, I want that's any why part it's of. Not funny, yeah. But yeah, yeah. at the same time, I do think like he should be, even though that I think the thing that with the girlfriend and every, the, and mm -hmm. the prom was like deeply shitty behavior. Like, I don't think it's like a comedy ethics violation or anything like that. You know, like, yeah. I don't, I think that like the idea that there would be some sort of invisible reality police that would come out and snatch him away. Like, I think that that's just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you know? I don't, he should be able to, he should be able to make up stories about stuff fine. like that too. But yeah, they should fine. be fine. But I think we can say that it bothers us, you know, oh, that yeah, there's no, something I find like deeply lame. Um, yeah. Right, like there's right. something going on that we're like, Oh, that's like, right. it feels sociopathic you know. and most yeah. <laughs> com comedians are pretty sociopathic, but it feels yeah, sociopathic sure. in a way that is not endearing or funny Right. Or good, you know? Yeah. And like, I'm with you. I'd much rather hear like an offensive comedian be kind of like, you know, like be kind of like performatively racist or something like yeah. that. Because at least like there's something interesting there. And also sometimes it's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> I would rather watch that than like hear some like, you know, very like just straight out of central casting POC, upwardly mobile dude scold me about like why I'm a bad person because I'm not as woke as he is like that <laughs> shit sucks man and like right. that's I think that's where like some of the shot the massive outpouring of schadenfreude came out mm -hmm. but yeah I, I don't know I just I I can't handle that stuff I just find it so lame yeah I won't go yeah, as yeah. far I don't believe that these people think care about anything you know and there's it's just narcissism wrapped up in liberal sentiment yeah. with an identity layer painted over it about how you're so oppressed, you know? And it's like, I don't really believe you're that oppressed, dude, you know? It's just like, it's, yeah, I mean, it's not that funny. It's not funny. Just be funny. <laughs> just, Someone on Twitter your job is to be funny, so be <laughs> right. funny. Someone on Twitter responded to me and was like, all this would be fine if, this, if, if, if his act was funnier. And I totally well, agree with thing. that. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, but Claire's also telling us kind of why it's not funny. You know what right, I mean? Like right. there... It does have explanatory heft, I feel like. And, yeah, um, I think if the stories yeah. were more humiliating for him, that it would have been okay, you know. Yeah. But it was always like, but yeah, me and my friends, we got over on that on that non-existent FBI agent, you know. Or I like, was trying to think of like the Doug Doug Stanhope like amazing comic, like his version of like the anthrax joke, and it would be like, and then like, and then my baby just like died. Oh yeah, yeah. Like it would yeah. be something so so dark, you know. Anyway, well, I, I don't. I think... feel like there are ways to play with that kind of thing where you yeah, like know. the audience knows it's a joke, you know it's a joke, everyone knows it's wrong. We don't need to talk about how it's wrong. I know? know, I know. But his his thing is always just sort of look. I don't want to sound like a right wing reactionary here, but like we all know that there is a fucking there is a uh, there is an economy and a commodification of victimization that does happen, right? And it generally is a certain <laughs> amount of it's kind of upwardly mobile immigrant people who who capitalize on it maybe i do you know i don't know i think about it all the time but you know probably there's some truth to it if someone's like you do it too but you know i hate it about myself you know and <laughs> you know that that should be people's uh, but then what if what if it's not that and okay maybe it is partially that but just to play devil's advocate what if he's also being like i'm doing this because it happens to other people and it's like it's important for people to be educated about it. I have a public platform. I'm going to make a point about how this is wrong. I don't know. There are funnier people talking about it. 
That's the thing. Like I, I was, I've been thinking a lot about Claire's piece and like basically yeah. at the end of all of my like thought trains, I'm like, it's just not that funny. It's just not that funny. Like that's you know? kind of like, yeah. What type of comedian yeah. hires journalists to come in and help their show, you know? All right, Jay, you're like going too far. A lot of our friends are employed on these shows. <laughs> are they i apologize you I'm know like, but i bet they don't love it either you know? i know nobody yeah. likes that job it's a very nobody likes their job it's, it's a, a bad job it's a very job. bad job and all you do is get yelled at you know oh you're killing the show you yeah. know and sometimes you have to hold the line and then you get yelled at again oh you're killing the show you know it's just a terrible it's a bad position to put anyone in i will but, i will you know, not our tell checks you... as journalists are so small that you know i i don't begrudge anyone it's who does it I if someone asked me to do it right now i probably that. would just do it you know because i'd be like well it's better than you know writing <laughs> <laughs> journalism <laughs> I saved a lot of money and I traveled with that money. So I am grateful for that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Job. That's but, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I also was fired before the end of the season. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right. So uh, here is, without further ado, let's go into our conversation with Karen Tongson about karaoke, Olivia Rodrigo, all of that. We're very excited about it. Here it is. <laughs> So I'm excited to introduce our guest, Karen Tongson. She is a professor and chair of the Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies at USC. She teaches on race, gender, and sexuality studies in popular culture, on literature and critical theory, on karaoke scenes and technologies on Los Angeles, the Southern California region, and the Pacific Rim, and on contemporary food cultures as well. She is the author of Norm Porn, Queer Viewers, and the TV That Sues Us. Uh, that is out, I think, later this year. Is that right? November 2023? It's, yeah, out in November. And I just got the box of books shipped Ooh. to me, my author copies today. So, oh, wow. That's yeah. always like a... It's, it's real. Thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> my, I, I recently got a bunch of remainders sent to me of my book. <laughs> that was less exciting. They're like, do you, they're like, do you want us to ship it to us? And I had written out an email, you know, being like, no, please don't send it to me. But I forgot to hit send on it, you know, like it was in my dress and then they <laughs> sent it to me. <laughs> so I just got it. Um, Why Karen Carpenter Matters, that was out in 2019. And Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, uh, that was 2011. And there's a, you you have a new book in progress, I, I believe, and it's called Empty Orchestra, Karaoke, Queer Performance, Queer Theory. Um, and that will be out at some date in the future through Duke University Press. Karen, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, we brought you on because we, I honestly, it was just me. I became very interested <laughs> in this Olivia Rodrigo album <laughs> and I had all these theories about that I was discussing on our, uh, group on our podcast discord. And I realized that there, I was speaking from a place of, you know, just basic hot take area where I was like, okay, I don't really know that much about this, but I have feelings about it. Right. And so generally when this happens, it's not that I don't think that I'm wrong about these things, but I'm just like, I could be very wrong. You know? And so that's when we generally like to talk We're to like, people let's who bring are, in someone to make who sure. are more right about it. So just, just off the start, like what, what do you, what do you think about Olivia Rodrigo uh, and her music? I've always liked Olivia Rodrigo. Um, and you know, I didn't actually know a lot about her at first other than, hearing driver's license. And, and when I heard 
that song originally, I was like, wow, this just so captures like a total teen burb, like SoCal mm-hmm. suburb set of sentiments to me. I was just like, I, I felt it, you know, as you mentioned, I wrote a book about the suburbs and I felt right. it on that level. And then when I wikipedia her and found out that she grew up in the IE and she was probably writing about those landscapes that I know all too well myself, <laughs> having grown up there from the age of 10 right. up. Inland Empire, we should say, right? Exactly. I, the yeah. Inland Empire. Uh, then I was just like, okay, there's a lot about her. And also the fact that I didn't know that she was Filipina or like, you know, like of Filipino descent. So um, once all those things came together, I was like, okay, I got you, Olivia. I understand <laughs> you now. I see I see where, where our interface is here, you know? <laughs> Right. I mean, like she seems to be, uh, what was interesting to me was I felt that there's, I, I wrote about this and it was like, I wonder if you felt it this as well, because I know that like, you know, part of your, the podcast that you do is about sort of, you know, it's like, I think it's positioned from like a Gen X person, right? Looking back. And one of the things I noticed was that like, I felt it too. And it felt almost like a throwback in a lot of ways, right? To a lot of the suburban angst of like, I think, me you and Tammy's childhoods right that was sort of centered around maybe even like the dullness of of suburbia but also like the anger that comes out of it and then like a certain type of sound that 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 I heard yeah I mean I think you know whatever there have been a few pieces written about it since it came out that like connected to Gen X culture in different ways. And obviously, you know, having made her debut around such a suburban, you know, a suburban hit like Driver's License, right? Um, Guts feels like, you know, someone who grew up around the kind of top 40 radio that was the only thing we had, at least that I had access to, you know, in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up in the suburbs, you know, before, before Napster hit and Y2K and all of that stuff where, you know, so much of your exposure to music is through really mainstream outlets, right? Like, like the radio or like older siblings, or even hearing the ambient music of your parents and through school, frankly, like high school, the repertoires of high school choirs, all of that stuff. And so for me, you know, Guts really nails that genealogy, that way of listening. Well, what was some of the stuff you you listened to growing up in the IE? What didn't I listen to? I mean, my first passionate uh, music listening practices like happened around the 80s British invasion. I was a Durrani. I loved Duran Duran. And then I became <laughs> obsessed with Wham and George Michael. And I realized that was like the kind of first tingle of my queerness was like loving George Michael so much and right. how manscaped he was. <laughs> and then, you know, I loved Scritty Politti. So it's like all of that British stuff from the 80s. And then, uh, you know, as I got a little bit older and like in high school, there's freestyle, right? You know, like expose uh you know um lisa lisa and the cult jam uh and but also like i you know i listened to very eclectic range of music like i was reminiscing the other night about how someone i had a crush on in high school you know basically uh when i got high for the first time made me listen to a yes album 
you know, with him, you know, so it's like, you got to listen to this Yes record. So, <laughs> so it was a very eclectic range of things. And it was an omnivorous musical experience. I don't know. I, I think I'm trying to remember the first music I listened to when I got high. And I think it was live. Remember that? Thing? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like very embarrassing to, to recall, but I'm pretty sure it was live because my friend was really into that band. But like, um, you know, one of the one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was like, you know, like the what is sort of the when you heard when you learned that she was Filipina, right? Like, and that she was from this area. Like, what is that area like in terms of like a you know a Filipino population? Because that's kind of I I I have a hard time locating her from like a Asian American standpoint, you know, even that, like I have a hard time like understanding where she's from. Cause I'm not from that area. Like um, I did, you know, I lived for a while in the Valley, you know, San Fernando Valley and I taught at a school that was you know, in a area that was had some, you know, some Filipino presence as well. And then I lived for e in Eagle Rock for a while. Right. And so I have some familiar with like Southern California, Filipino, uh, communities, but, but not, not this specific one. So can you tell me a little bit about like what, 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 what it's like? Well, it's evolved a lot. And honestly, I mean, I haven't lived there since I left for college in 1993. So, um, <laughs> basically, uh, you know, 30 years or is that 30 years now? Oh my God. 20? Yeah. That is 30 years. Oh my years. God. That's nice. 30 years. Yeah. Whew, that has happened since that that time that I last <laughs> lived in 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 Riverside. But my parents do still live there. So, which is to say, when I was growing up, there wasn't a huge Filipino American population out in Riverside, which is where I was, which is a little bit you know uh, closer to Los Angeles than say Temecula, which is where she's from, like Temecula Marietta, which is kind of in between Riverside, San Diego. In any case, uh, so I remember what a revelation it was to meet other Filipinos. Like as I got into middle school, as I got into high school, I mean, I didn't know that many, like there was just a handful of us. And then over the course of time, uh, that population, especially in the Inland Empire, increased tremendously, just of all sorts of brown folks, Asian, Asian Americans, you know, black folks, like, and for a long time, of course, you know, Latinx folks were like in the area, but but it it, it became more palpably uh, possible to be Asian American, Filipino American. There were more businesses. The entrepreneurial classes started to come up, you know, uh, in the late '80s, early '90s, right before I left. So I imagine that, you know. Olivia Rodrigo was born 10 years after I left the Inland Empire, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, what, the year that I finished my PhD in English, you know? So it was so, so I don't know what her experience was like, uh, but, you know, but I do believe that she got to experience a much more sort of openly like intersecting milieu of like brown folks, POC, but also just a bunch of people nerding out, like kind of in that big John Hughes-ish high school <laughs> scenario, which is the kind of schools that are out there, right? You know, and I think that part of her mythos is that she, you know, is somebody who, and something that I'm interested in, wrote about in the Karen Carpenter book, like who, you know, uh, cultivated her musical interests and talents and abilities in public school music programs, 
And, you know, I think that there's still that going on. So nice. Um, yeah. Despite the winnowing of that, like culturally all over the place. I was curious about when you were growing up there, kind of what the, the class composition was and how you sort of located your parents as music, musicians in that mix. Um, I guess like last year, maybe the year before we had on our show, a uh, Latina labor organizer from San Bernardino talk about the Inland Empire economy around the logistics and warehousing, which I think cropped up kind of a little bit maybe after the period we're talking about with your childhood. But but yeah, what was what did it mean to be the child of musicians? What you know, what was the sort of class mixture when you were there? It's, it's a very disorienting class mixture that, like, I experienced for various reasons. I mean, one is that, you know, um, my parents themselves, or like at least my dad, who was the person who, uh, my stepdad, who was born and raised in Riverside, California, before he met my mom in the Philippines, mm-hmm. um, he you know, he came from a kind of solidly middle class, like, but, but, but kind of a more of a blue collar middle class environment. Like think of Marty McFly's neighborhood in Back to the Future. <laughs> that was exactly it, right? So nothing fancy or affluent, not even after he goes to the past and comes back and they have like a turn of their fortunes. <laughs> it's like the McFly family in the beginning of Back the to the Future OG. was sort yeah, of our, our situation. But my par- you know, my parents had not really ever done anything other than music because my mom came from a kind of known musical family in the Philippines. So, mm-hmm. so there was also the immigrant disorientation of you know, inhabiting a class that was lower than the one that she knew or grew up in, in the homeland, you know? And so I went to a very working class high school, uh, a very like racially mixed working class high school. We were not the fancy, it was an old high school. It was kind of like, um, but there's the fancy rich kid school. <laughs> like that was kind mm-hmm. of our rival. I you know, went to Ramona, they called it Scamona because of all these things. Right. <laughs> and, uh, so that was the sort of, that's the kind of, like, so they were also working musicians. So my right. dad's, um, among his regular gigs was as the piano manager at Nordstrom and a piano player at Nordstrom, Amazing. right? So he literally, like, his regular gig was at the mall in between, like, other teaching lessons, composition, like, he'd do, like, arrangement work, like, as as a composer, as a ranger, and then they did gigs in Palm Springs and Los Angeles, Right. So that's sort of what it was like. So we weren't, you know, we'd have access to an adjacency to fancy things Mm -hmm. and and people and milieus. But then we lived as River Cityans lived. And my mom worked at Kmart, you know, as her day job and stuff like that. So it it was it was, you know, all of that. Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how, you know, it's something that this was, I just want to run a theory by you, right? And it was something that I didn't write about, but I thought about a lot, which was in terms of Olivia Rodrigo and some of the attacks that she gets right now, you know, I don't think we should overstate these attacks. Olivia Rodrigo is beloved, right? And sells, you know, has, Mm -hmm. is going to be extremely wealthy at some point if she's not already and is uh, one of the most popular people, but she does receive quite a bit of hate and the hate is generally from I don't know, as far as I can tell, it's from a lot of Taylor Swift fans, right? And that um, that that there was something about the way in which she was attacked that made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And it was because, you know, at some point, 
Taylor Swift, I think, demanded that Olivia Rodrigo give her a songwriting credit for a song in which she's sort of almost sampling a Taylor Swift song, and that this costs Olivia Rodrigo quite a bit of money, and that there is this almost sense that like, oh, well, Olivia Rodrigo is just sort of copying, right? She's just a copier, and she doesn't come up with anything original, but Taylor Swift is like super original. And that, to me, those types of conversation when it comes to like I think Asian music, but in particular music from the Philippines is always going to seem a bit, I don't know. I don't, I'll just, uh, whatever. It's my podcast. Who cares? It's fucking racist. You <laughs> There's know? something like, going on here. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like where I just feel like, um, and yet it also seems like that there is like, it seems, it seemed rude. And the reason why I want to talk to you so much was that it seems also rooted in like karaoke culture as well. Right. Um, that, that uh, I don't think that the vast majority of people listen to Olivia Rodrigo's music are even aware that she's Filipina, right? But I do think that people who attack her probably are, right? And that there is this sense that maybe she is, and it's like that, you know, oh, well, she's not original. She's not real. She's not original. This is something that I think people who are Asian always hear, like filmmakers yeah. hear this, right? Anybody yeah. who does any type of art as an Asian person, but, you know, even as an Asian American sort of comes across this where we're seen as not having the ability to be original ourselves. And I feel like there's something about it all wrapped up in that, right? Filipino karaoke culture, sort of the sense that Asians can't be creative, that 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 is like driving a lot of this backlash against her, you know, even though it's like small compared to her person to her popularity. What do you think about this theory? Absolutely. I mean, look, that's basically a lot. There's a big chunk of the karaoke book that's about that. And I've written quite a few things in, about that, even in the Karen Carpenter book yeah, about, you know, the, the Filipino passion for Karen Carpenter and the notion that there's Karen Carpenters of the Philippines or that in Filipino culture, there's always like the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of the Philippines. There's always like, <laughs> think about the flack that Bruno, I mean, we have precedent for this. Think about right. the fact that uh, the, the flack that Bruno Mars gets yeah. for being a thief and, and and, you know, a kind of right. uh, a sh- a shallow showman who just rips New Jack Swing and, and all these other mm-hmm. genres. Um, but that is the peculiar and particular Filipino talent that's like completely enmeshed with the colonial history of the Philippines. And, you know, like the, the uh, you know, kind of primacy of U.S. pop culture because of, you know, of all the different ways the U.S. has fucked with the Philippines and occupied the Philippines for you know over 100 years you know and uh that there's a line that pico ier wrote i think uh i think he said that filipinos are or maybe it's maybe it's not pico ier so don't don't um let me attribute the wrong person (laughs) someone who said the filipinos are the consummate imitators of the american songbook right and because we are, we're good. We learned how to speak English because we were colonized <laughs> in the U.S. And you know, there's a there's a whole host of reasons, and I get into some of that in the Karen Carpenter book, whatever. Yeah, but I and do are you think, thinking about like military circuits, AFKN, like all that stuff? It, absolutely, cover bands, absolutely that. clubs, all that. Yeah, absolutely. That I give a talk about soft rock and like you know that and and like that's sort of the the taste for soft rock in the Philippines and what the histories, you know, mm-hmm. why that happens. But, you know, the thing with Olivia is that, you know, since we're on a first name basis, um, <laughs> is that I think that there is uh, the intimation of, of some aspect of her. That's, I, I think that there's like, 
I think that the people who diss her, some of the people know she's Filipino, but it's also being suburban, right? It's being a suburban girl who doesn't, like in the U.S., we have two notions of authenticity or have for a long time that are linked to space. You either come from the country in some way and have like an authenticating like country story or voice, mm-hmm. which Taylor started from, even though truthfully, like, you know, she came from Pennsylvania. Right? Yeah, this is suburban. Um, yeah. And, and, and don't, I'm not dissing Taylor because I, I am a Swifty at 50. I call myself that. <laughs> so... Um, and then I'm a gayler as well because I have Amazing. a lot of things. I have, could talk about Taylor at some point if you ever want to. But also, you know, um, or you come, you have the authenticating grit of the city of being, right. you know, urban, some urchin yeah. who like cut their teeth on like, you know, Warhol's factory and heroin or whatever it is, right? Nowadays, <laughs> right? So it's so there is the sense that when you do come from the suburbs, all of your aesthetic influences are secondhand or they're inherited from like the mainstream and you just are kind of, um, you know, a replicator. So that crossing over intersecting with the aspect of her identity that's revealed to be Filipino, Filipino American, uh, you know, I think affords that level of criticism at Olivia, um, even though, you know, I mean, it's sort of like what high school kid is not totally derivative, especially if you grew up in the United States, you know, in a particularly, like, ever. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're genetic. You're learning how to do shit. 20 years old. Yeah. That's where I I actually find that the flip side of that is so interesting to me as a defense of her, you know, which is that she does come from this uh, tradition of, you know, like you said, of colonization and of, you know, like, I don't know how aware she is of it, but certainly I can imagine that maybe she had, she went to a couple parties in her life where there's a karaoke machine dragged out. Right. And that, and she seems to be interested in, in her Filipino heritage as well. You know, she talks about it and she, I think recently said that like the only time she was ever starstruck was when she met Vanessa Hudgens because Vanessa Hudgens is also, you know, from the, uh, is also Filipino. And she, so she talks about it. And then the suburban part is also interesting to me because like listening to the album, I was just like, you just picture some suburban girl with her friends at like Claire's accessories or at hot topic. And like the soundtrack that comes on is like <laughs> yeah. the one that she's downloaded. It felt her familiar head. to me too. That right. Way. <laughs> and it's just so, it's like, she's taken all of that and created this like landscape that actually is so faithful to it that it mm-hmm. makes me happy. You know, like I, yeah. I'm just like, Oh, actually this is extremely American in this, like in a way that I, as like a 43-year-old dad, I can like fully understand, you know, it's, it's great. I imagine Chris Rodrigo, her dad, who is a Filipino-American, right? As Filipino descent. I imagine some of the stuff he's listening to is some of the stuff that I listen to. And also, though, that kind of bleeds over into like what my parents listened to or like what the sonic landscape was of people who are adjacent to or from the Philippines, you know, um, who either immigrated directly or who, ha- you know, are Filipino descent in the U.S. There is a repertoire. There's a songbook. There's the Carpenters. There's, you know, um, a lot of artists, like a lot of different smooth jazz artists. You know, there's there's like people who are popular, American artists who were only popular or like extremely popular in the Philippines, but had much more middling careers here. Like, you know, there's so I, I'm I'm sure that someone sang a Stephen Bishop song at karaoke, like, you know, in front of Olivia at some point and that like she heard that or the melodic, the melodic Green Day songs, you know, like that's like all part of this, you know, um, 
a kind yeah. of sonic or you know even Ed Sheeran who was such a dick to Filipinos like when he like he had this whole controversy when he went on tour there because one of his mates his buddies like you know dissed Filipino folks in really, really? horrific ways. I didn't know about this. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But he's still beloved by Filipinos. Like his his songbook, you know, and you can probably pop into any karaoke bar in any part of the Philippines and hear somebody um, sing Thinking Out Loud way better than Ed Sheeran. I mean, I know I do a really <laughs> great version of it myself. So, you know. Um, do you guys? Oh, go ahead. I was going to yeah, ask yeah. you like about with the, the new album, like if you think that some of these kind of race-based attacks have to do with genre. I mean, I, the, I was like listening to All American Bitch on repeat and thinking about like Mitski with All American Girl and, you know, all the talk that's been in the news around like Japanese Breakfast and Mitski and, and some of these like kind of post-Karen O rock Asian girls. And that is sort of, I didn't feel like that maybe was questioned or attacked in the same way that Olivia was. And I don't know if that's just me and kind of what I'm hearing or, you know, if there's a genre difference between the pop and the rock. Uh, it's because, I don't, don't you think because it's, it's she's because she's um, genre promiscuous that people well, find that's her what, Yeah, sus, I'm curious. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think part of it is that it's like kind of fun, you know, whereas like, yeah, I like Mitski a lot, but Mitski is so serious, you know, and it's like, uh, I think you can sort of be so that's like, what you're allowed to be as an Asian. Yeah, like girl I think you can be like earnest and serious, <laughs> but you can't be like, well, what if I did something that kind of sounded like the Breeders, right? Yeah. And uh, I'm just doing this song that's an homage to this era, and then you know the 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 uh, I don't know. I don't want to get that mad at random people's tweets, but you know, like the person who came <laughs> out and very went kind of viral because they were like, oh, Avril, of this is like right. if this is our our generation's Avril Lavigne. And that was the part, that was actually where I started thinking about all this because I was like, Avril Lavigne was the most constructed, like quote punk act of my childhood that I can remember. Everybody was just like, oh, she's just an industry plant. Like, I don't think anybody really even knew what an industry plant was back then, but like, you know, she was so clearly constructed and yet she's allowed to have some claim of authenticity that this, that Olivia Rodrigo doesn't, right? And that I think it's just sort of like it, and to me, it just felt very racialized at that point. Or one needn't even throw back that far and think about Billie Eilish. Yeah. Right. You know, right. Billie Eilish is also like brooding in Glendale or wherever she's from, you know, like making <laughs> Highland Park. Brother, Highland Park. You know, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, don't denigrate Highland Park. So yeah. different than Glendale. <laughs> she's in the HP, like making, you know, um, songs with her brother, but also doing the same thing, being very absorptive. And yeah. and her citationality is seen as a form of facility and expertise. Right. You know, as opposed to, um, or at least her brother. And originality, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah it's yeah. Like, facility, expertise, like yeah. original, making something different. Yeah. The old American idol adage, make it your own, you know. <laughs> and, um, and the thing is, though, I feel like, until we knew more about Olivia Rodrigo, like this kind of haterade wasn't, you know, uh, part of what she was being showered with. I agree. Know. I agree. It, yeah. Yeah. Are you an American Idol fan? I used to follow it religiously, but okay, I so fell off. You know, do like, you remember Jessica Sanchez? She was like a Filipino uh, American 
contestant and she was like incredible but it was always the same thing from the judges you know oh it sounds like you're doing karaoke and i would always get so mad oh, about wow. it you know because yeah. i was just like oh this you're just being racist against Holy her shit. you know um like the show is a karaoke show you know like yeah. what are we talking about <laughs> here you know but it was that it was like make it your own don't just sing it and i was like she is making it her own you know and she's doing it at this incredibly high level but you can't get it through your heads that it's that way because you see someone from the Philippines or from Filipino background and you're just sort of coded as being karaoke, you know? So that was actually, you know, like where I know you've written about this a lot. Like, when does that start happening? Why does it start happening? You know, I know that it has this huge history behind it, but like, like, you know, just give us like the two minute, three minute version of like, when, when does, when does Filipino music in particular, become so associated with a type of karaoke type of flavor? Look, I think that it's happened from the beginning, like I said, around professional musicians and around the fact that Filipinos are the entertainers of, were the kind of entertainers of Asia at first, like, you know, playing in Hong Kong, playing in all the resorts, playing all the covers, right? All the cover bands, of course, Arnel Pineda, uh, the lead singer of Journey, right? The replacement lead (laughs) singer of Journey who's just like uncannily like, uh, uh, Steve Perry-esque, right? You know? Uh, so I think, though, that, you know, the maybe the more contemporary understanding of that comes with, you know, these moments in the kind of mid-late aughts where you have... I, mean, I think that, like, people like Bruno Mars, for example, and his emergence, there's an SNL sketch where, sketch where he plays an intern at Pandora and he, like imitates all these different styles. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. like the, the, all of the criticism he received is certainly attached to that. Mm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think it's also the virality, like YouTube as a platform, right? Is like, remember when Ellen DeGeneres was like discovering a new Filipina like every other day? Right, like, including, <laughs> including those three little boys, right? Who did yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like from YouTube, right? So right, people yeah. were literally like, interns were literally like scouring <laughs> YouTube to find these people with amazing voices. Like, I remember, I don't know if either of you remember Rin on the Rocks. No, like, Rin, that's not duo. true, but I, I'm surprised because I am a, I, I pride myself in being a deep cataloger of Filipino YouTubers. <laughs> well, they were like a, 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 you know, two Pinay gal pals who uh, were from the Bay Area and they used to record in their bathroom. They'd record themselves singing songs like in cute duets to like neo songs and then like Alan had them on and then took them to the grammys and all you know like whatever so like i do think that that's there's some aspect of that i think that um uh you know a lot of filipino scholars have written about that right christine balance and tropical renditions writes about Hmm. um that and like you know the the Cebu prisoners who danced to Michael Jackson. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's a whole, like, so I think that our contemporary understanding of it comes from that period, like that post-millennial period of these things coalescing. But it also, that also coincides with karaoke becoming more, uh, I guess, a more acceptable and mainstream, but at the same time still derided pastime in the U.S. Yeah, it's, uh, I, um, you know, I, I've spent some time in the Philippines, uh, you know, and uh, like I said, I, it's something that I just follow quite, I would say pretty carefully in terms of not as academic, but just as like an enthusiast. And, you know, that, um, 
the karaoke scene there is very real, you know, like it is something that has come about and certainly I think has gotten a lot more popularity recently. I don't know. Every time I go on TikTok these days and it might just be what I actually search for, but like there's just <laughs> videos and videos and videos, including one I saw the other day of this man just absolutely killing Celine Dion, you know, or oh, I was yeah. just, yeah, I was like, but oh that's just God. at every corner. Right, 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 like, right. It's so right. mundane, right? Right, right. So that's where I, when I was traveling around the, um, you know, I spent like, I think, what, like five weeks in Manila. And then I traveled around a little bit with my wife and everywhere we went, you know, literally everywhere we went, like there was not like a room house or like a hotel we went to where like the people next door weren't doing this. Right. So when, when did that culture start? Like when, when does like sort of the, the traveling karaoke machine, almost every, any, you know, any mall that we went into Manila, obviously, like people have seen a lot of videos of that where, you know, you have like 13, 14 year old kids just absolutely killing Whitney Houston. And you just oh, yeah. stop and you're just like, oh my God, this is you the can most go different. see that at Eagle Rock Plaza. Here, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. is true. That too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like um, at Seafood City. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one of the, so one of the stories I tell in the Empty Orchestra book, which is the book about karaoke, because that's what karaoke means is empty orchestra, um, is that there are two stories of invention of the karaoke machine, right? The invention of the karaoke machine. One is the one that everybody knows about Daisuke Inoue um, innovating this in Japan in 1972. He's a musician who created a backing track and he kind of jerry-rigged together this thing called the eight juke that you drop a coin in and you'd have a backing track. Uh, and he, I love the, the, my little detail that I love about that is that he made it so that it would cut off after three minutes when most songs are like three minutes and a few seconds. So that meant that you have to drop another coin. You have to just keep dropping <laughs> coins. Exactly. So that you've got to get the big finish in, right? You yeah, put exactly. Another yeah. exactly. Like you're not going to be deprived of that. Right. But around the same time, uh, a man named uh, Roberto Del Rosario created the SAS or the sing-along system. And it was, you know, uh, one aspect of it was that it was kind of like a player piano that would play backing tracks. And another was just, you know, another kind of um, sing-along system where that used minus one technology, mm -hmm. which is where minus one, meaning you deduct the, the vocal track and, you know, you can... Um, you can sing over that. And I remember, right. so that was circa 1976. So technically after in a ways, uh, you know, karaoke machine, but that said, Filipino musicians were already using minus one technology sometimes when they'd be performing overseas so that they didn't have to bring as many personnel with them. So it really is in that period of time where you get the first, you know, available technologies to sing along, right? And so karaoke culture, not just public singing or sing-along culture, but like, you know, starts in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. It really kicks up uh, in that period of time, both here and all over. But like, um, sorry, when I said here, I meant the Philippines. I don't know why I said that. But, <laughs> yeah. the, the, just for our listeners, the sort of performance worldwide thing that you're talking about is mostly from OFWs who are going on cruise ships or like you said in Hong Kong, right? That there's like a sort of whole diaspora of, of Filipino musicians and they're playing in places where they're asked to play very popular recognizable songs. And that um, yeah. much like saying, I don't, I can't bring a 
six piece backing band, but I can bring a synthesizer that this type of technology starts to come around. Yeah. Or I can bring these backing tracks, like right. what people do now. I mean, like everybody does it now, right? Like bring, bring it to, they bring them to auditions. They bring them to, right. you know, like, um, frankly, you know, like Crystal Waters did a, a show like that we did with LA Phil recently and she had two backup dancers, but the rest of it was minus one, right? Like it was all mm. music backing tracks, uh, pre-recorded tracks. Uh, so yeah. So, and Filipino musicians, my parents did that. Um, my family, for example, I lived in Singapore with my mom and dad when they played at the Hyatt Regency, <laughs> they didn't have to play pop covers that, but they wanted them to be very specific and play only jazz standards from like basically the thirties and forties and they could only wear black and white because it was like a kind of deco theme anyway. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, so I've like grew up around that stuff and, um, and yeah, it's, it's a, it's a recreation. It's something that you can do. And of course, a lot of the footage you've probably seen on TikTok right. is people who have like Jerry built machines or really old kind of almost are like discarded versions of it of karaoke technology and they're just like out in the middle of a field somewhere or whatever eating grilled meats and fucking singing beyonce you know like slaying beyonce and that's, yeah yeah, that's basically, yeah the, that's that's just the and sometimes it happens disaffected you go shopping like at any of the big you know um like kind of outdoor malls or markets and there's always somebody just who's tending a shop who's singing along maybe with the radio and you're just like, wow, they have a great voice. So, you know, not every Filipino can sing. I could say that, but even here in the U S and the Filipino diaspora, it's like a thing where like you perform with your family, you do something, you know, when you have a big family gathering, everybody has a talent that they, you either dance or you sing or, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that it's, it's interesting how online the meme seems to be like, uh, like you said, like just a normal day and you know, like whatever, you know, like whatever city that you want to say. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's under every single video that they post on YouTube or, uh, or TikTok or whatever, like the first 40 comments are just a normal day in the Philippines. Right. Yeah. And there's like, there's, there's this sort of thing coming along where it seems like a lot of people are sort of asking, why are Filipinos so good at singing, right? Like, why are they so good at, and there people are like this type of stuff, like, you know, it can get ugly because it becomes racially essentialist or whatever. But obviously yeah. this is like, this is like earnest fun, you know, young people just kind of being like, well, what's going on there? Um, but yeah, like what I, I might, I guess my question about it is like, and I've, I, I know that you've written about this and you've thought about it is just like, all right, well then what is it? why the proficiency, like why the amazing abilities, right? Like one of the things that I thought about when thinking about it was that like when I was in the Philippines, I saw a lot of like cover bands as well, right? And that the cover bands were incredible, right? Like I just, like some of them, like it was just like listening to a recording and then some of them were better, you know, like were better than the original. Um, and so, yeah, like that, that kind of, uh, not to just, I know that we've talked about it before, but like, where does, where does it come from? Right. Right. Like, you know, like I have like, like I, when I was in college, I studied Dominican baseball, right? Like I was like, well, you know, why are Dominicans so good at baseball? There's a whole, you can go very far back and answer that question. But like the, you know, the Filipino singing question, like, is there an answer to it or is it, is it a question we shouldn't ask? 
<clears throat> I think it's a fair question to ask because, you know, um, I think that there are obviously a range of reasons. One of the things, of course, is church singing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you know, they're kind of like another um, previous colonial kind of, you know, um, uh, like, the, the, you know, Catholicism, et cetera. And it's, you know, uh, and, you know, people sing in church, but people sing, you know, in, in different forms of worship, various other Christian religions coming in, you know, where that's one of the main gathering things I think that happens also like, obviously in Korean culture and other, right. you know, places that have like strong, you know, missionary like situations. Right. Um, but also I do think that what you just said and how you pointed to the fact that there is a career option or opportunity that one could have, like, right. you know, a kind of, um, if you cultivate the skill or develop the skill, you can, um, you know, maybe you'll get a gig and you can live somewhere else and try to do that kind of labor overseas instead of another kind of labor, right? right. Um, and and also there are a lot of like, you know, even the daily shows when I was a kid in the 70s, you know, there's a lot of singing competition happening uh, and people are encouraged to. There's like no shame sort of attributed to singing or performing or what have you. Very little, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... So I do think that it's, you know, I imagine that's part of the baseball question, too, is like once people figured out that, like, you know, this was a kind of ticket to uh, a different way of being or a way out. There are Ms. Saigon schools in the Philippines after Leia Salonga, you know, debuted as Ms. Saigon and slayed that role like as Kim. Uh, schools in the Philippines cropped up to train people specifically to star in Miss Saigon. Right, right. You know, and Lucy Burns, Lucy Mesa and Pablo Burns writes a great book about that in Puro Arte. Um, but like, yeah, I think that there's, again, there's a whole host of reasons, but many of them come from, you know, also the demand for um, Filipinos to be in the image of their American occupiers, right, in various respects, to be proxies, to be as Rudyard Kipling wrote about some little brown brothers, right? You know, to 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 be a reflection of uh, that colonial that culture of U.S. culture, and I think that we sort of saw that as our our opportunity, right, to ascend in different ways. I think there's a reason Imelda Marcos always tried to sing songs when they were busy, you know, dictatorially like controlling the Philippines. Uh, you know, like she thought that it was, I think, you know, some way of like connecting with the people and also like with the, the, the others and the other states around uh, the Philippines who would see them as recognizable and not foreign as not, you know, what have you, not as not um, alien in some way. Is there like, I, do you feel, do you, I, I just remember this from walking around because I, you know, one of the times I went there was during Christmas, you know, and everywhere I went, I heard Mariah Carey, you know, all I want for Christmas is you. And I, you know, and it was blasted out. And that's right, you know, and you have the jeepneys driving around and you can really feel American colonial power at that moment, you know? And it was like, it was actually a very powerful experience for me, you know? And then, um, and then uh, I was like, well, there, what is the resistance music in this country, right? Because I think I had a very like shallow idea of what, I was like, oh, if they're just copying Mariah Carey, then that's colonial mindset, which is like a stupid way to think about it. But, you know, forgive me, I was very young at the time, <laughs> you know, but um, 
so I went looking for it and I went to like Makati, right? And then I saw this like I think it was a bunch of rich kids playing punk punk music, right? Like, oh yeah, that, you probably yeah. went to Sagiho, which is okay. the name of the venue. That oh yeah, happens. I think yeah. that was probably the name of the venue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and it and, is a bunch of rich kids playing punk music, but you know, like yeah. <laughs> no, no, but it was fun. You know, it was like a fun yeah. show and everything yeah. like that. But you know, like I, I don't know. Like I, I guess what I am asking is, like, what the, you know, I actually think that my reading of that was wrong at the time, right? That that the idea was that that you know, punk music would be a resistance music. What is the resistance music in this country that's been, you know, that will only play Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, uh, over and over and over again? But like, you must have a more complicated like thinking about this. Yeah, can can you just tell me about it? Like, what what is like how how does one like where are moments of resistance? Where are moments of sort of um, of resistance to this sort of colonialism within within this type of music and sort of the you know um, redoing sort of uh, you know like Western songs. I think one aspect of resistance to think about here is the fact that sometimes we do it better. <laughs> you know, like that. It's just like we actually have you know have mastered the master. Right. And I think that there's some aspect of that that's just like, yeah, you know, like, motherfucker, like, I'm like, I can do this. And like, look, look, it's it's just me, you know, and I can fucking do this. And it's like, I think that there's like that aspect of it. It's just like the fact that so many of us can and that, that you can't, you know, like the fact that like, you know, this thing that we prized and treasured as just like, you know, like some unique, inimitable voice or talent. I write about this in the Karen Carpenters of the Philippines chapter about Karen Carpenter. You know, of course, Karen Carpenter had a singular voice, but there is an uncanny, like a blind woman busker, like, you know, like (laughs) basically like saying a song so eerily evocative of Karen Carpenter, like Karen Carpenter's voice. It's just like, wow. So there, there's a victory in that. I think there's a victory in, you know, just like excelling at copying the original to the point that it, you know, is like matches or meets the original. The other bit of resistance is, I think, and this is a little more subtle, is the stubbornness with which we cling to music that's out of time. So stuff that's like, you know, like um, there is a kind of strong attachment. They're like the, the fact that we create canons and songbooks of musics that like maybe everyone else has moved on from, but that mm-hmm. we still feel are like, special and resonant and part of um, incorporated into our traditions in their new ways or in their ways, um, I think is where it's like, actually, you know, maybe other, maybe you feel like you can throw this out in the U S or maybe you can feel like you can move on because this was corny or you can move on because this person wasn't that big a deal, what have you. But like our, you know, it's like relationship to it is not just one of reverence, but it's like a stubborn attachment. And that stubbornness, like of keeping music alive that wasn't meant to stay alive past a certain expiration date or point, or artists alive who were meant to be one hit wonders or flashes in the pan. I think that there's resistance in that as well. Yeah, I, I, I that's, that's great. Cause I, I, um, while you're talking, I was thinking about these videos that I see where like uh, there's a whole line of friends, you know, at a bar and they all like, I don't know, they'll be singing like 
listen right from dream girls or something like that and they'll all do a part <laughs> every single one of them is so good right and it's like there's this demystifying effect i think that happens right because like some of the way that the west holds power i think or you know like colonial power is like oh you could never do the things that we do in oh, the yeah. arts right oh your art is so primitive right like you don't have but then you take like the most powerful like worldwide broadcast thing and then you have like six friends at a bar and they're just crushing it, you know, and that there's almost like, oh, you think we can't do this, right? Like, uh, this is easy. For us. Yeah. Like, we're just six people, you know, yeah. in, in a suburb of Manila. Like, we're nobody special and we can do this. Like, I don't know. I, I think maybe that's part of the reason why I get so excited watching those, because it is like this whole like, um, you know, it's it's just like, oh, actually, the things that you say are inaccessible, to primitive minds right or like <laughs> actually we can just do it you know yeah it's just like yeah you know like i can do this while slinging back some rum and eating like a piece of like grilled pork fat you know right. like it's just sort of like like that's sort of like that's the the beauty and pleasure and 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 what have you like you know there's some of the karaoke videos even you see like this one dude singing beyonce and it's just like He's so disaffected. He's like smoking a cigarette. He right, they're always is like sitting down, eating food, <laughs> sitting down, having a drink here, maybe a little chug of beer, and then just like singing in in like her range, her upper range. You know, like like it's nothing. <laughs> so well, that is, I think that is to me that's where the resistance is, right? Right. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. I think that, um, and I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it until you just said it but you know like that is it seems like the performance itself right and sort of the ease with it it can be achieved and then um and then just the fun of it right like oh this is not really something that like we're not taking even this that seriously we're just like amazing at it It seems also maybe true of like the i don't want to over theorize any of this but like maybe that's also what is appealing about to me at least about Olivia Rodrigo's music, which is that like, I remember, I remember listening to that to guts and I was just like, Oh, she just made like a, such a catchy pop punk song. That's actually better than the stuff that I listened to when I was growing up, you know? And then this song vampire, which I do think is about Taylor Swift, you know, <laughs> um, it's kind of like a evanescence type of thing at the beginning. And then it kind of turns into like a weird pixies type of song, but it's like just so, damn catchy it's like so much better and that that seems to be the fun of it is just like oh like everyone takes these genres so seriously but i'm just gonna kind of redo them and like you know everyone's gonna love them like there's like i don't know if olivia rodrigo is thinking about that in terms of resistance but at least that for me some of the listening of it that's what excites me about it yeah i think so too and i do i do hope i declare it here to all your listeners that I hope the wound heals between Taylor and Olivia, <laughs> you know, um, uh, I do, I appreciate them both. I think they're, they're great talents. I think that there's room for everybody, you know, to, to excel. And I don't, you know, and I certainly hope, I think it's, it's probably Swifties, you know, um, and the Swifties and like the Hetlers and the Swifties who are like a very like possessive and weird. And some of whom show up, who at the Eras tour who showed up at the Eras tour with merch 
that's like like that MAGA looking merch, but like pumping Taylor in pink. Oh, no, like, that's when I was all like, no. Did no, you go? No. Did you go to the? Did you go to Eras? I did. I okay, was it really that good? Because I, I'm okay. Well, you went twice because I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm always curious asking people, you know, like where who. It was uh, the best thing I'd ever seen. Like, like, look, I went to opening night. I first I went. I enjoyed Taylor Swift's music before I went to Eras tour. Right. I enjoyed her music. You know, like in like kind of like I enjoyed some a couple of albums, whatever. I wasn't like deep into it. I went with my sister in law and uh, my my wife's nephew, right? And and it was his first concert, and I was excited because he was really into her. And then I went and I was like, holy shit! I mean, it's like it's like a three plus hour show, forty five songs, forty four songs, and you know, um, it was it was really kind of stirring and then I was like okay then my sister-in-law were like we have to go back because <laughs> you know we had like a little kid with us last time and now like okay. we just want to immerse ourselves so we went to Dallas and we went we <laughs> and then uh and then because also we went there because I was out of town when she came right. to LA so like I was like I'm not going to be in California I'm not going to be in the US when you know Taylor does the LA shows so you know, and I can't I, like, and I already have my tickets for the Eras Tour movie, like in oh, October. Wow. So, like, when I'm serious, like, when I'm like, I own a bunch of her shit on vinyl. It's like, you know, um, so yeah. I mean, maybe so you it's want like, them. You want them to to I, end I this. To, you like, want them to end this beef. Yeah, I maybe. hope it keeps going on because it's like <laughs> it's. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's more generative, fun. artistic. Yeah, generative. yeah. Well, I mean, mostly it's generative for you know. If I want, uh, I I just find it more interesting because I couldn't believe that she. I find her denials, non-denial denials of this, to be so entertaining. You know, where she's just like. She's like, what are you talking about? That song is about anyone, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm just a nice person. And you're like, no, you can end this by just saying that song is not about Taylor Swift. But you <laughs> won't say that, you know, because it is about Taylor Swift. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I, I guess I just, you know, I, I think I am not part of any stand community except maybe, <laughs> except maybe Nicki Minaj stands, but we don't have to go into that. But like, it's like, <laughs> but no, I might join yeah. the, the Olivia Rodrigo one if she just, you know, causes more drama like this because I just find it wildly. Well, I mean, it's you know, she's got to kill the like, you know, the imago, like, like, like right. the predecessor, because like right. she was like the or her origin story is very much like she was into country music. She was in especially Taylor Swift. Yeah, that's yeah. How she started. And so now, you know, and now she's like doing her own thing, which I, I like, you know, more power to her. And I will continue to listen to both and admire both and, and, you know, what have you. Um, okay. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, this was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we will. Um, yeah, we'll look out for your book coming out and everybody. You should listen to uh, Karen's podcast and you should read her work. Um, thanks for coming on. This was great. Thanks for having me. Oh,